0: part two of adventure eleven of the adventures of sherlock holmes by sir arthur conan doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by ruth golding adventure eleven the adventure of the beryl coronet part two my friend insisted upon my accompanying them in their expedition which i was eager enough to do for my curiosity and sympathy were deeply stirred by the story to which we had listened. I confess that the guilt of the banker's son appeared to me to be as obvious as it did to his unhappy father, but still I had such faith in Holmes' judgment that I felt there must be some grounds for hope as long as he was dissatisfied with the accepted explanation. He hardly spoke a word the whole way out to the southern suburb, but sat with his chin upon his breast and his hat drawn over his eyes, sunk in the deepest thought. Our client appeared to have taken fresh heart at the little glimpse of hope which had been presented to him, and he even broke into a desultory chat with me over his business affairs. A short railway journey and a shorter walk brought us to Fairbank, the modest residence of the great financier. Fairbank was a good-sized square house of white stone, standing back a little from the road. A double carriage-sweep with a snow-clad lawn stretched down in front to two large iron gates which closed the entrance. On the right side was a small wooden thicket, which led into a narrow path between two neat hedges, stretching from the road to the kitchen door, and forming the tradesman's entrance. On the left ran a lane which led to the stables, and was not itself within the grounds at all, being a public, though little-used thoroughfare. Holmes left us standing at the door, and walked slowly all round the house, across the front, down the tradesman's path, and so round by the garden behind into the stable lane. So long was he that Mr. Holder and I went into the dining room and waited by the fire until he should return. We were sitting there in silence when the door opened and a young lady came in. She was rather above the middle height slim, with dark hair and eyes, which seemed the darker against the absolute pallor of her skin. I do not think that I have ever seen such deadly paleness in a woman's face. Her lips, too, were bloodless, but her eyes were flushed with crying. As she swept silently into the room, She impressed me with a greater sense of grief than the banker had done in the morning, and it was the more striking in her, as she was evidently a woman of strong character, with immense capacity for self-restraint. Disregarding my presence, she went straight to her uncle, and passed her hand over his head with a sweet womanly caress you have given orders that arthur should be liberated have you not dad she asked no no my girl the matter must be probed to the bottom but i am so sure that he is innocent you know what woman's instincts are i know that he has done no harm and that you will be sorry for having acted so harshly why is he silent then if he is innocent Who knows? Perhaps because he was so angry that you should suspect him. How could I help suspecting him when I actually saw him with the coronet in his hand? Oh, but he had only picked it up to look at it. Oh, do, do take my word for it that he is innocent. Let the matter drop and say no more. It is so dreadful to think of our dear Arthur in prison. I shall never let it drop until the gems are found. Never, Mary! Your affection for Arthur blinds you as to the awful consequences to me. Far from hushing the thing up, I have brought a gentleman down from London to inquire more deeply into it. This gentleman? she asked, facing round to me. No, his friend. He wishes to leave him alone. He is round in the stable lane now the stable lane?" she raised her dark eyebrows. "'What can he hope to find there?' "'Ah, this, I suppose, is he. I trust, sir, that you will succeed in proving what I feel sure is the truth—that my cousin Arthur is innocent of this crime.' "'I fully share your opinion, and I trust with you that we may prove it.' "'returned Holmes, going back to the mat to knock the snow from his shoes. "'I believe I have the honour of addressing Miss Mary Holder. "'Might I ask you a question or two? "'Pray do, sir, if it may help to clear this horrible affair up. "'You heard nothing yourself last night?' "'Nothing, until my uncle here began to speak loudly. "'I heard that, and I came down.' You shut up the windows and doors the night before. Did you fasten all the windows? Yes. Were they all fastened this morning? Yes. You have a maid who has a sweetheart. I think that you remarked to your uncle last night that she had been out to see him. Yes, and she was the girl who waited in the drawing-room and who may have heard uncle's remarks about the coronet. "'I see. You infer that she may have gone out to tell her sweetheart, and that the two may have planned the robbery.' "'But what is the good of all these vague theories?' cried the banker impatiently when I have told you that I saw Arthur with the coronet in his hands. "'Wait a little, Mr. Holder. We must come back to that. About this girl, Miss Holder, you saw her return by the kitchen door, I presume?' "'Yes. When I went to see if the door was fastened for the night, I met her slipping in. I saw the man, too, in the gloom.' "'Do you know him?' Oh, yes, he is the greengrocer who brings our vegetables round. His name is Francis Prosper. He stood, said Holmes, to the left of the door. That is to say, farther up the path than is necessary to reach the door. Yes, he did. And he is a man with a wooden leg. Something like fear sprang up in the young lady's expressive black eyes. Why, you are like a magician, said she. How do you know that? She smiled, but there was no answering smile in Holmes' thin, eager face. I should be very glad now to go upstairs, said he. I shall probably wish to go over the outside of the house again. "'Perhaps I had better take a look at the lower windows before I go up.' He walked swiftly round from one to the other, pausing only at the large one which looked from the hall onto the stable lane. This he opened, and made a very careful examination of the sill with his powerful magnifying lens. "'Now we shall go upstairs,' said he at last. The banker's dressing-room was a plainly furnished little chamber with a grey carpet, a large bureau, and a long mirror. Holmes went to the bureau first and looked hard at the lock. Which key was used to open it? he asked. That which my son himself indicated, that of the cupboard of the lumber-room. Have you it here? That is it on the dressing-table. Sherlock Holmes took it up, and opened the bureau. "'It is a noiseless lock,' said he. "'It is no wonder that it did not wake you. "'This case, I presume, contains the coronet. "'We must have a look at it.' He opened the case, and taking out the diadem, he laid it upon the table. "'It was a magnificent specimen of the jeweller's art.' and the thirty-six stones were the finest that i have ever seen at one side of the coronet was a cracked edge where a corner holding three gems had been torn away now mr holder said holmes here is the corner which corresponds to that which has been so unfortunately lost might i beg that you will break it off the banker recoiled in horror i should not dream of trying said he then i will holmes suddenly bent his strength upon it but without result i feel it give a little said he but though i am exceptionally strong in the fingers it would take me all my time to break it "'An ordinary man could not do it. "'Now, what do you think would happen if I did break it, Mr. Holder? "'There would be a noise like a pistol-shot. "'Do you tell me that all this happened within a few yards of your bed, "'and that you heard nothing of it?' "'I do not know what to think. It is all dark to me.' "'But perhaps it may grow lighter as we go. "'What do you think, Miss Holder?' "'I confess that I still share my uncle's perplexity. "'Your son had no shoes or slippers on when you saw him. "'He had nothing on save only his trousers and shirt. "'Thank you. "'We have certainly been favoured with extraordinary luck during this inquiry, and it will be entirely our own fault if we do not succeed in clearing the matter up. "'With your permission, Mr. Holder, I shall now continue my investigations outside.' He went alone at his own request for he explained that any unnecessary footmarks might make his task more difficult. For an hour or more he was at work, returning at last with his feet heavy with snow, and his features as inscrutable as ever. "'I think that I have seen now all that there is to see, Mr. Holder,' said he. "'I can serve you best by returning to my rooms.' but the gems mr holmes where are they i cannot tell the banker wrung his hands i shall never see them again he cried and my son you give me hopes my opinion is in no way altered then for god's sake what was this dark business which was acted in my house last night If you can call upon me at my Baker Street rooms tomorrow morning between nine and ten, I shall be happy to do what I can to make it clearer. I understand that you give me carte blanche to act for you, provided only that I get back the gems, and that you place no limit on the sum I may draw. I would give my fortune to have them back very good i shall look into the matter between this and then. good-bye it is just possible that i may have to come over here again before evening it was obvious to me that my companion's mind was now made up about the case although what his conclusions were was more than i could even dimly imagine Several times during our homeward journey I endeavoured to sound him upon the point, but he always glided away to some other topic, until at last I gave it over in despair. It was not yet three when we found ourselves in our rooms once more. He hurried to his chamber, and was down again in a few minutes, dressed as a common loafer. With his collar turned up, His shiny, seedy coat, his red cravat, and his worn boots—he was a perfect sample of the class. "'I think that this should do,' said he, glancing into the glass above the fireplace. "'I only wish that you could come with me, Watson, but I fear that it won't do. I may be on the trail in this matter, or I may be following a will-o'-the-wisp but I shall soon know which it is. I hope that I may be back in a few hours." He cut a slice of beef from the joint upon the sideboard, sandwiched it between two rounds of bread, and thrusting this rude meal into his pocket, he started off upon his expedition. I had just finished my tea when he returned, evidently in excellent spirits swinging an old elastic-sided boot in his hand. He chucked it down into a corner and helped himself to a cup of tea. "'I only looked in as I passed,' said he. "'I am going right on.' "'Where to?' "'Oh, to the other side of the West End. It may be some time before I get back. Don't wait up for me in case I should be late.' "'How are you getting on?' Oh, so-so. Nothing to complain of. I have been out to Streatham since I saw you last, but I did not call at the house. It is a very sweet little problem, and I would not have missed it for a good deal. However, I must not sit gossiping here, but must get these disreputable clothes off, and return to my highly respectable self. I could see by his manner that he had stronger reasons for satisfaction than his words alone would imply. His eyes twinkled, and there was even a touch of colour upon his sallow cheeks. He hastened upstairs, and a few minutes later I heard the slam of the hall door, which told me that he was off once more upon his congenial hunt. I waited until midnight, but there was no sign of his return so I retired to my room. It was no uncommon thing for him to be away for days and nights on end when he was hot upon ascent, so that his lateness caused me no surprise. I do not know at what hour he came in, but when I came down to breakfast in the morning, there he was, with a cup of coffee in one hand and the paper in the other, as fresh and trim as possible. "'You will excuse my beginning without you, Watson,' said he. "'But you will remember that our client has rather an early appointment this morning.' "'Why, it is after nine now,' I answered. "'I should not be surprised if that were he. I thought I heard a ring.' "'It was indeed our friend the financier. I was shocked by the change which had come over him for his face, which was naturally of a broad and massive mould, was now pinched and fallen in, while his hair seemed to me at least a shade whiter. He entered with a weariness and lethargy which was even more painful than his violence of the morning before, and he dropped heavily into the armchair which I pushed forward for him. "'I do not know what I have done to be so severely tried,' said he. "'Only two days ago I was a happy and prosperous man without a care in the world. "'Now I am left to a lonely and dishonoured age. "'One sorrow comes close upon the heels of another. "'My niece Mary has deserted me.' "'Deserted you?' Yes, her bed this morning had not been slept in, her room was empty, and a note for me lay upon the hall table. I had said to her last night in sorrow and not in anger that if she had married my boy all might have been well with him. Perhaps it was thoughtless of me to say so. It is to that remark that she refers in this note, my dearest uncle. I feel that I have brought trouble upon you, and that if I had acted differently, this terrible misfortune might never have occurred. I cannot, with this thought in my mind, ever again be happy under your roof, and I feel that I must leave you for ever. Do not worry about my future, for that is provided for. And above all, do not search for me, for it will be fruitless labour and an ill service to me in life or in death i am ever your loving mary what could she mean by that note mr holmes do you think it points to suicide no no nothing of the kind it is perhaps the best possible solution i trust mr holder that you are nearing the end of your troubles you say so you have heard something mr holmes you have learned something where are the gems you would not think a thousand pounds apiece an excessive sum for them i would pay ten that would be unnecessary three thousand will cover the matter and there is a little reward i fancy have you your cheque-book Here is a pen. Better make it out for four thousand pounds." With a dazed face the banker made out the required cheque. Holmes walked over to his desk, took out a little triangular piece of gold with three gems in it, and threw it down upon the table. With a shriek of joy our client clutched it up. "'You have it!' he gasped. I am saved! I am saved! The reaction of joy was as passionate as his grief had been, and he hugged his recovered gems to his bosom. There is one other thing you owe, Mr. Holder, said Sherlock Holmes rather sternly. Oh! He caught up a pen. Name the sum, and I will pay it. No, the debt is not to me. You owe a very humble apology to that noble lad, your son, who has carried himself in this matter as I should be proud to see my own son do, should I ever chance to have one. Then it was not Arthur who took them? I told you yesterday, and I repeat to-day that it was not. You are sure of it. Then let us hurry to him at once to let him know that the truth is known. He knows it already. When I had cleared it all up, I had an interview with him. And finding that he would not tell me the story, I told it to him, on which he had to confess that I was right, and to add the very few details which were not yet quite clear to me. Your news of this morning, however, may open his lips. For heaven's sake, tell me, then, what is this extraordinary mystery? I will do so, and I will show you the steps by which I reached it. And let me say to you first that which it is hardest for me to say and for you to hear. There has been an understanding between Sir George Burnwell and your niece, Mary. They have now fled together." "'My Mary! Impossible!' "'It is unfortunately more than possible. It is certain. Neither you nor your son knew the true character of this man when you admitted him into your family circle. He is one of the most dangerous men in England, a ruined gambler, an absolutely desperate villain, a man without heart or conscience. Your niece knew nothing of such men. When he breathed his vows to her, as he had done to a hundred before her, she flattered herself that she alone had touched his heart. The devil knows best what he said. But at least she became his tool, and was in the habit of seeing him nearly every evening. "'I cannot, and I will not believe it,' cried the banker with an ashen face. "'I will tell you then what occurred in your house last night. Your niece—' when you had, as she thought, gone to your room, slipped down and talked to her lover through the window which leads into the stable lane. His footmarks had pressed right through the snow, so long had he stood there. She told him of the coronet. His wicked lust for gold kindled at the news, and he bent her to his will. I have no doubt that she loved you, but there are women in whom the love of a lover extinguishes all other loves, and I think that she must have been one. She had hardly listened to his instructions when she saw you coming downstairs, on which she closed the window rapidly and told you about one of the servants' escapade with her wooden-legged lover which was all perfectly true your boy arthur went to bed after his interview with you but he slept badly on account of his uneasiness about his club debts in the middle of the night he heard a soft tread pass his door so he rose and looking out was surprised to see his cousin walking very stealthily along the passage until she disappeared into your dressing-room petrified with astonishment the lad slipped on some clothes and waited there in the dark to see what would come of this strange affair presently she emerged from the room again and in the light of the passage lamp your son saw that she carried the precious coronet in her hands she passed down the stairs and he, thrilling with horror, ran along and slipped behind the curtain near your door, whence he could see what passed in the hall beneath. He saw her stealthily open the window, hand out the coronet to someone in the gloom, and then, closing it once more, hurry back to her room, passing quite close to where he stood hid behind the curtain. As long as she was on the scene he could not take any action without a horrible exposure of the woman whom he loved but the instant that she was gone he realized how crushing a misfortune this would be for you and how all-important it was to set it right he rushed down just as he was in his bare feet "'opened the window, sprang out into the snow, "'and ran down the lane where he could see a dark figure in the moonlight. "'Sir George Burnwell tried to get away, but Arthur caught him, "'and there was a struggle between them, "'your lad tugging at one side of the coronet and his opponent at the other. "'In the scuffle your son struck Sir George and cut him over the eye, Then something suddenly snapped, and your son, finding that he had the coronet in his hands, rushed back, closed the window, ascended to your room, and had just observed that the coronet had been twisted in the struggle, and was endeavouring to straighten it when you appeared on the scene. "'Is it possible?' gasped the banker. Hugh then roused his anger by calling him names at a moment when he felt he had deserved your warmest thanks. He could not explain the true state of affairs without betraying one who certainly deserved little enough consideration at his hands. He took the more chivalrous view, however, and preserved her secret. "'And—' That was why she shrieked and fainted when she saw the coronet, cried Mr. Holder. Oh, my God, what a blind fool I have been! And his asking to be allowed to go out for five minutes. The dear fellow wanted to see if the missing piece were at the scene of the struggle. How cruelly I have misjudged him. When I arrived at the house, continued Holmes. I at once went very carefully round it, to observe if there were any traces in the snow which might help me. I knew that none had fallen since the evening before, and also that there had been a strong frost to preserve impressions. I passed along the tradesman's path, but found it all trampled down and indistinguishable. Just beyond it, however, at the far side of the kitchen door, a woman had stood and talked with a man, whose round impressions on one side showed that he had a wooden leg. I could even tell that they had been disturbed, for the woman had run back swiftly to the door, as was shown by the deep toe and light heel marks, while wooden leg had waited a little and then had gone away. I thought at the time that this might be the maid and her sweetheart, of whom you had already spoken to me, and inquiry showed it was so. I passed round the garden without seeing anything more than random tracks, which I took to be the police. But when I got into the stable lane, a very long and complex story was written in the snow in front of me there was a double line of tracks of a booted man and a second double line which i saw with delight belonged to a man with naked feet i was at once convinced from what you had told me that the latter was your son the first had walked both ways but the other had run swiftly and as his tread was marked in places over the depression of the boot it was obvious that he had passed after the other i followed them up and found they led to the hall window where boots had worn all the snow away while waiting then i walked to the other end which was a hundred yards or more down the lane. I saw where Boots had faced round, where the snow was cut up as though there had been a struggle, and, finally, where a few drops of blood had fallen, to show me that I was not mistaken. Boots had then run down the lane, and another little smudge of blood showed that it was he who had been hurt. When he came to the high road at the other end, I found that the pavement had been cleared, so there was an end to that clue. On entering the house, however, I examined, as you remember, the sill and framework of the hall window with my lens, and I could at once see that someone had passed out. I could distinguish the outline of an instep where the wet foot had been placed in coming in. I was then beginning to be able to form an opinion as to what had occurred. A man had waited outside the window. Someone had brought the gems. The deed had been overseen by your son. He had pursued the thief, had struggled with him. They had each tugged at the coronet, their united strength causing injuries which neither alone could have effected. He had returned with the prize, but had left a fragment in the grasp of his opponent. So far I was clear. The question now was, who was the man, and who was it brought him the coronet? it is an old maxim of mine that when you have excluded the impossible whatever remains however improbable must be the truth now i knew that it was not you who had brought it down so there only remained your niece and the maids but if it were the maids Why should your son allow himself to be accused in their place? There could be no possible reason. As he loved his cousin, however, there was an excellent explanation why he should retain her secret, the more so as the secret was a disgraceful one. When I remembered that you had seen her at that window, and how she had fainted on seeing the coronet again, my conjecture became a certainty. And who could it be who was her confederate? A lover, evidently, for who else could outweigh the love and gratitude which she must feel to you? I knew that you went out little, and that your circle of friends was a very limited one, but among them was sir george burnwell i had heard of him before as being a man of evil reputation among women it must have been he who wore those boots and retained the missing gems even though he knew that arthur had discovered him he might still flatter himself that he was safe "'for the lad could not say a word without compromising his own family. "'Well, your own good sense will suggest what measures I took next. "'I went in the shape of a loafer to Sir George's house, "'managed to pick up an acquaintance with his valet, "'learned that his master had cut his head the night before, "'and finally... The expense of six shillings made all sure by buying a pair of his cast-off shoes. With these, I journeyed down to Streatham and saw that they exactly fitted the tracks. I saw an ill-dressed vagabond in the lane yesterday evening," said Mister Holder. "Precisely, it was I. I found that I had my man." "'so I came home and changed my clothes. "'It was a delicate part which I had to play then, "'for I saw that a prosecution must be avoided to avert scandal, "'and I knew that so astute a villain would see "'that our hands were tied in the matter. "'I went and saw him. "'At first, of course, he denied everything.' but when i gave him every particular that had occurred he tried to bluster and took down a life-preserver from the wall i knew my man however and i clapped a pistol to his head before he could strike then he became a little more reasonable i told him that we would give him a price for the stones he held a thousand pounds apiece that brought out the first signs of grief that he had shown why dash it all said he i've let them go at six hundred for the three i soon managed to get the address of the receiver who had them on promising him that there would be no prosecution off i set to him and after much chaffering i got our stones at a thousand pounds apiece then i looked in upon your son told him that all was right and eventually got to my bed about two o'clock after what i may call a really hard day's work a day which has saved england from a great public scandal said the banker rising sir i cannot find words to thank you But you shall not find me ungrateful for what you have done. Your skill has indeed exceeded all that I have heard of it. And now I must fly to my dear boy, to apologise to him for the wrong which I have done him. As to what you tell me of poor Mary, it goes to my very heart." Not even your skill can inform me where she is now. I think that we may safely say, returned Holmes, that she is wherever Sir George Burnwell is. It is equally certain, too, that whatever her sins are, they will soon receive a more than sufficient punishment. End of Adventure 11 THE ADVENTURE OF THE BERYL CORONET